0: Good, welcome to everybody out there. Like I said, in the virtual world, we have a cozy group of women here. And one, I mean, pretty angelic baby, really. I was surprised yes. <laughs> how well he did. So um, I actually put on lipstick for tonight. That is something I haven't done in maybe 11 months or so. <laughs> so if it's garish, you know I'm out of practice here, but I figured if I'm gonna be on video, I need to have some color on my face. All right, well, I've entitled this lesson your blessed life now. Now, that is a parody, of course, on Joel Osteen's best selling book, Your Best Life Now. But I also think it happens to be a catchy way of remembering what this book of Psalms is all about. Okay, and by the time this lesson is over, I want you to know three things. I want you to know number one, what is the Song of the Blessed? I want you to know number two, what the blessed life is. And three, I want you to know how you can get that blessed life. And I'm gonna answer those questions first by talking through the book of Psalms as a whole. And then I'm just gonna briefly talk through the introduction to the Psalms. So the first two Psalms that you studied for your homework tonight. Okay, most of us tend to read the Psalms as individual units in and they telling their own story. And that, that's fine. They are absolutely intended to be read that way. But if we only read them as isolated units, we miss something profound that God is doing in the book as a whole. And we might even fail to recognize why this book of Psalms is in our Bibles in the first place. You see, the editor of the Psalms, so the person who divided up the Psalms and arranged them into this particular order, doesn't come right out and give us a purpose statement for why he put the book together the way he did. Instead, he gives us multiple clues so that as we find them in our reading, we begin to deduce why this book is in our Bibles. Well, the very first clue we find in the book of Psalms is found in that first word of the entire book, which is, of course, lust. And unfortunately, that word has kind of become really cliche in our culture, right? It's like everybody's favorite hashtag on Instagram. Uh, it's embroidered on our pillows, we wear it on our t-shirts, and it's kind of become so overused that we've forgotten what it means. Well, that Hebrew word for blessed actually sounds something kind of like Asher, which incidentally is what we named our firstborn child, but it can also be translated happy or it carries with it the idea of delight or joy. So just by the way this book opened, we already know something about why it's in our Bibles. It's offering us happiness. Well, another place you can look to find a clue about what the purpose of a book is by looking at the end of the book. So if you were to flip over to Psalm 150, you'd see that the final chorus of the book is praise the Lord. And it's not just a mumble PTL spoken out of coercion or habit. The book actually ends with a symphony of instruments and voices and with people dancing all to the tune of praise the Lord. Okay, so the book begins with an offer of happiness and then it ends with all of God's people delighting and giving him praise. When read as a whole, the Psalms teach us that blessed people praise the Lord. Praise the Lord is the song of the blessed. And we don't just find that song of the blessed at the end of the whole book when everybody's kind of gathered together and singing in God's presence, we actually find this song at the end of each individual book. And that helps us realize that we can praise the Lord now. We can praise him today. We can praise him tomorrow. We can sing this song of the blessed every day of our lives until that great day when we are assembled as God's people in his presence. Okay, so I just mentioned that Psalms is divided into five books. And if you haven't, maybe you've noticed that as you've read through them. But those five books are an intentional parallel. So there are five books of the law, and now we have five books of the Psalms. And that helps the reader know that these five books that you're going to find in the Psalter are every bit as much God's words as the book of Moses, as the books of Moses. And and you need to know that because when you read these, they don't sound like God's words. I mean, every other book of the Bible, you have God speaking words to his people. But when you get to the Psalms, we flip that whole model and you have God's people speaking to their God. And they have really human sounding things to say, right? Things like help, I'm dying. I'm so tired. I'm scared. I'm small and weak. That's wrong. That's unjust. Make it right. Things like, Why, God? Where are you? Can I really trust you? How long, O oh Lord? Will you do what you promised? Forgive me. Do those sound like God's words? Well, they are all of them, five books of God-inspired songs and prayers. Now as we read through the Psalms, we're going to see how these five books collectively unfold, and they actually retell the story of Israel, and we're going to see that happen. But they, as they unfold, they also foretell the story of Jesus. But there's another story going on there because as you read them, you're gonna see your story reflected right back to you in the words of these psalmists. But for today, what I want you to remember is that all five of these books end the same way. They all end with the song of the blessed. And what is the song of the blessed? Say it with me. Praise Praise the Lord. Just say it like you mean it. Praise Praise the Lord. Lord. Good. Okay, these repeated endings to the books show us that it is God's intent to draw our hearts out to praise him, no matter what season we find ourselves in. What's more, these songs and prayers prove that it is possible to praise the Lord in every circumstance. This book is in our Bibles to illustrate that you can live your blessed life now. But what is that blessed life? Let's answer that question. And how do you get it? Don't you want to know? How do we arrive at the place in life where we can sing God's praise in in every situation? Well, we find the answer to those two questions in the introduction to the Psalms. So in Psalms 1 and 2, we already know that the word blessed can also be translated happy. Well, Psalm 1 fills out this definition, definition of blessed in a three stanza hymn. So Psalm 1 is a three stanza hymn. In in the first stanza, there's a contrast between the blessed and the wicked. And the contrast reveals the, the words that shape them. Stanza two contrasts the blessed and the wicked with the picture. And then stanza three contrasts the end of the blessed with the end of the wicked. Okay, so if you were to look at verses one and two, you see that wicked men fill their minds with the counsel of the ungodly. And there is a progression to this path that they're on. We see that in the verbs walk, sit, and stand, or what is it, walk, stand, and sit. People on this path first give ear to the counsel of the ungodly. They're kind of considering what they're saying. Then they begin to meditate on it. When they reach the point of sitting in this council, they have completely adopted the words of the scoffers and their behaviors. But in contrast, a blessed person, the blessed woman, fills her mind and heart with the counsel of God. And there is a progression to this path as well. And we're gonna see where both of those paths end up in a moment. In the second verse, verses three and four, the contrast between the righteous, here, that's the synonym for the blessed. So the blessed and the righteous are the same person. But the contrast between the righteous and the wicked is shown with a picture. The righteous person is a tree. This is what you love about poetry right you can describe the righteous person or you can just draw a picture so now the righteous person is a tree and it's not just any kind of tree this is a tree that's old and fruitful and beautiful it has a thick trunk so thick you can barely wrap your arms around it it's got those chunky gnarled roots that have spread out wide and gone very deep when you look at a tree like this it has branches that are reaching out to the sun and roots that are digging deeper for water because the tree knows what it needs it knows what will make it happy and it has spent the long years of its life reaching for the sun and digging for water that's the righteous person but what about the wicked what's the opposite of a tree like the one i just described i was kind of thinking like a charlie brown tree doesn't have any roots anymore, it's kind of stickly looking branches. Well the picture of the wicked is actually far worse than that, it's not just the opposite of a deeply rooted tree. The wicked are no more than chaff, and that is just the leftover after you've removed the grain. So in ancient, thats chaff, ancient Israelites would have immediately recognized what this was. But in ancient agricultural practices, they would throw the grain into the air, maybe with pitchforks, the winnowing, and the wind would just kind of blow away all the useless bits like the dried husk, pieces of dust, straw, and they would just disappear in the wind, never to be seen again. That's the wicked. Well, the third and final stanza of the song is found in verses five and six. And here we get the contrast Um, between the end of the blessed with the end of the wicked. And it states it in a shuddering finality. See, God knows the way of the righteous. He doesn't just observe them dispassionately from afar. He watches them. He guards them. He plans and tends their path with the love of a father. This is the kind of relationship the blessed person enjoys with his God. His future is secure. Blessed people will take their place among the congregation of the righteous, and they will stand boldly and without shame before God on the day of judgment. But in sharp contrast to the blessed, the wicked won't be admitted into God's presence. The only words God will speak to them is depart from me, I never knew you, and they will be winnowed out like that chaff to be burned, never to be seen or heard from again, excluded from God's presence, outside of love and light, forgotten, unnamed, unknown. The way of the wicked will perish. Those are the distinct futures of the wicked and the blessed. Psalm one teaches us that the blessed life is a life that is directed, nurtured, and guarded by a loving dad And Psalm 1 also teaches us something else. It teaches us that meditating on God's word is the key to enjoying this blessed life now. So what about you? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be known and loved by God? Do you want to stand boldly in his presence? Or do you want to be kept on the outside? This psalm is God's solemn warning to people who are about to enter the rest of the Psalter. He says, there is happiness inside. There is blessing to be found, but you have to look for it where God gives it. And he gives it in his words. Okay, but before you can actually enter the rest of the Psalms, we need a little bit more information about what the blessed life is and how you get it. So Psalm two is a second introduction to the, to the entire book. Think of Psalms one and two, like a double door entryway, two doors here. The blessing is just beyond those two doors, but you have to have the key to both of them to get it. So the first door is God's word, and it opens with the key of meditation. The second door, as we'll see in Psalm 2 is God's king, and it opens with a kiss. Word and king, those are the two main themes of the Psalter, and how you relate to both determines whether or not you can have a blessed life. So while Psalm 1 revealed the meditation of blessed people, Psalm 2 reveals the meditation of the wicked for what it is. And you hear it in their voices, right? In verse 3, let us burst their bonds and cast their cords from us. Okay, their meditation, this is mutiny. This is rebellion. And those bonds and cords that they are so desperate to be rid of, are the boundaries that God as their creator and sovereign have placed on their life and on their beliefs and on their behaviors. Now, blessed people, righteous people delight in those bonds and cords. So those boundaries are part of God's words to us. We know them, we meditate on them, and we have grown to delight in them. We have come, if you're a blessed person, you have come to experientially know that God's boundaries on your life and your behaviors and practices, that they're actually good and they're satisfying, but the wicked resent these. Psalm 2 helps us see that this rebellion is not just in the occasional, in the heart of the occasional madman, but that it is instead the full-scale attempt of the human race to overthrow God as their ruler. It is systemic, it's strategic, It's institutionalized rebellion. Verse 2 says it's led by the kings of the earth and the rulers. It's overseen by its rulers. And we know this, right? I've had had a pastor who would refer to this psalm as a history of the world in 12 verses. And we have seen this throughout history and we can see it today. We see this rebellion in the halls of Congress and in the legislation it passes. It's perpetuated in British Parliament and in the Communist Party of China. It's in courts across the nations. This rebellion shows up in the ambitious pursuit of power. It's on display in corrupt governments. Its effects are godless injustice and violence. It masquerades as tolerance and love and relativism and freedom. This is the raging of the nations against God's bonds and cords. And it is pervasive and comprehensive, and it's utterly futile. And we know this because of how the narrator in Psalm 2 opens the psalm. He says, why? And Implicit in that question is the absolute futility of this rebellion. If you look at the end of verse 1, they do this all in vain. They are never going to win this war against God. It's kind of like humans keep rebuilding the tower of Babel over and over and over again, just to be scattered every time. But their attempts will never work, but they will never stop trying. Well, how does God respond to this rebellion? We see his response in verses four to six. His powerful voice disturbs their plotting, but even before he speaks, he laughs and he laughs derisively. He's, he mocks them. You know, their raging is kind of like the temper tantrums of a toddler. You know, in the summer between when I graduated high school and began college, I nannied two boys. They were ages five and nine. They, the woman worked for my dad and he decided I would be a good fit for watching her children. Well, already the nine-year-old was in counseling for his anger and rage issues. At nine, so sad. Okay, well, my very first day, I made the mistake of asking the five-year-old to wash his hands after he used the bathroom. And he launched a full-scale rebellion. He raged and screamed at me. He tried to hit me. He said terrible things. I really had never seen anything like it. And all I could do was just restrain him. I held him on my lap and just let him rage and scream until he exhausted himself. And it seemed like it lasted forever. But when he finally wore himself out, I calmly walked him into the bathroom and helped him wash his hands. After which, he actually collapsed in a heap on the floor in one last attempt at rebellion, not a protest. Well, how ridiculous, right? He's a little kid. He hated the bonds and cords of hand washing. He didn't believe me that I was doing this for his good and for his flourishing. Also, he was no match for my strength. I could have crushed him. Well, the difference between this five year old and my 18 year old self, you know, the difference between God and us is so much more significant than the difference between me and this little five year old. And if I looked on this five year old with a little bit of outrage and some ridicule, can you imagine how God sees his rebellious creatures, the ones he made in his own image and how they are flailing and raging at him. Well, in the face of this global uprising, God establishes a king to judge them, but not just to judge them, to bless them. And we'll see that in a moment. Psalm 2 is often called the coronation psalm because in this psalm, King David reflects on God's promise to him to establish his kingly lineage forever. But this psalm, of course, points far beyond King David to the crowning of God's eternal King, the one who is in David's line, but the one who will conquer God's enemies and rule in God's name, with God's power and with God's character. Because this King's authority is from God, it is absolute and any who resist it, as the Psalm says, will be dashed into pieces, like the way your Brita terracotta planters shatter especially after they've been baking in the hot summer sun and you just knock it over. Well, that's how Jesus will judge the rebellious nation. Okay, this psalm, of course, foretold the crowning of King Jesus after his victorious resurrection from the dead. And with two words, this psalm hints at the path Jesus himself would have to walk in order to be crowned king. Those words are set in verse six and begotten in verse seven. Okay, that word set in verse six is actually the same word translated poured out in many other places in the Old Testament. That is sacrificial language. And I think that word is a hint about what Jesus, Jesus's own path to kingship would look like. It was going to be a path full of suffering, not unlike King David's. Before his coronation, Jesus would first be broken And dashed like these nations, and he would have his blood poured out, not for his own rebellion, but for theirs and for ours. That word begotten speaks of giving life. Can you think of a time when God would speak of giving life to Jesus? The Bible everywhere else teaches that Jesus is the eternal son of God, right? He's God. He has no beginning. He has no end. So when would God have given him life? Well, this word hints at Jesus' resurrection. In fact, the apostles quote this psalm in Acts. They're trying, they're seeking to um, convert their Jewish brothers. They're saying, look, the Old Testament actually predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead. And they go right back to this psalm and use this verse to prove that Jesus was alive. He had risen from the dead. In other places in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn from the dead. So after his resurrection, that is when God would have spoken to him of giving him life. Today I have begotten you. So this psalm prophesies about both Jesus' death and his resurrection. And those are the very things we so desperately need to solve the problem of our rebellion. You know, David concludes this psalm. Um, it's a reflection on the rebellion of the nations. And he concludes it with a final warning and a blessing. He says, the stage is set for world war here. The alliances are being formed. Whose side are you on? He asks. He warns us what will happen if we don't turn from our rebellion, but he promises blessing if we do. And you know what? He speaks directly to the kings and rulers. And remember, they're the ones who are the masterminds behind this plot to overthrow God's rule. And he speaks directly to them again, telling them to turn from their rebellion and kiss the son. You know, that word kiss, that's used a couple other places in the Old Testament. And I think I'll just mention this because that will help us understand what's going on here. In 1 Samuel, When Samuel first anoints Saul as the king of Israel, he kisses him. And it's just an act of loyalty and affection for his new sovereign. But we also see this word kiss on Mount Carmel when there was the great showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Well, you know what happens here, but Elijah is running for his life from Ahab and Jezebel. And he's complaining to God, I'm the only prophet left. And God says, no, I have preserved 400 prophets who have not bowed the knee or kissed Baal. So that kiss, again, is just it's like a pledge of loyalty, a pledge of affection to your king. To kiss the son is to declare your affection and your loyalty to King Jesus. Okay, I hope you can see how these two Psalms together teach us what the blessed life is and how we get it. So the blessed life is a life of happiness. It's a life that sings praise to the Lord regardless of its circumstances. It's a life of joy knowing your path is guarded and protected by a God who loves you. It's the delight of being fully known and yet fully accepted. It's the unshakable confidence that you have knowing that you are on the right side of this great war and that you have taken refuge behind the one who will rule the world with God's power and character. The blessed life is the life of an intimate friendship with God. Okay, These psalms go on to teach us that we can have this blessed life now by filling our days and nights with God's counsel, by meditating on his words. We can have this blessed life now by pledging our loyalty and affection to King Jesus. We embrace his bonds and cords, believing and knowing that they are meant for our good. We experience we this promised blessing in the day in and day out goodness of filling up with God's words, and taking refuge in Jesus. Okay, before I finish up tonight, I want to offer five very quick tips for reading and studying the Psalms. So we're just just getting started here tonight, but maybe if you could remember these five things as you go through the study, I think you'll be really helped. First, read these Psalms with friends. Most of them, if not all, most of these songs were meant for corporate use, not just private use. That might surprise you since they sound really private, right? I mean, in the psalm we're going to read in two weeks, David declares that he's a worm and not a man. I mean, can you get, imagine getting up and singing that before a congregation on Sunday? But that's how these songs were used. They were used corporately in the, gap, in the formal gatherings of God's people and in the informal gatherings of families. Well, I think this tells us something about the Christian life. It reminds us something about the Christian life. We live in community. We share the ups and downs of our brothers and sisters. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And these songs can be sung with and over people who are weeping and rejoicing. And you can sing them even if you aren't sharing in their experience. And when we do this, God is glorified, he's praised, and the church is built up. Okay, second tip, read them out loud. Okay, so po- these are poems, and it has, these poems have an oral component to them that prose doesn't have. So like music, it's meant to be listened to. When we hear and speak the words, God is using one more of our senses to draw our hearts out to praise him. And I think what you'll find when you speak these words, your mind and heart will more quickly unite to affirm the truths in here. And it's kind of going to loosen your tongue so that you can praise the Lord. Okay, third, read these Psalms as meditations on God's words. Okay, God tells us to meditate on his word, right? He promises a blessing if we do that. And then just like a good father, he gives instructions and then he gives us examples. These Psalms, all 150 of them, are meditations on God's words. These are the songs and prayers of God's faithful people. Now these Psalmists are people just like us. They're our forerunners. They've lived in this world. They experienced all the ups and downs of life under the sun. They felt sorrow and suffering and betrayal and grief and failure, but they also enjoyed restoration and forgiveness and love and devotion and joy. And God's word was the best for them through it all. They're like, these psalmists are a bunch of trees, right? Like this tree in Psalm 1. They're standing there, deeply rooted, extending their branches, bearing fruit. And they did this in their highest highs and in their lowest lows. And then God preserved their words to help us walk the path of the blessed behind them. So read these Psalms as meditations on God's word. Okay, four. You should come to the Psalms with an expectation of having your hearts stirred to praise the Lord. So when you open your Psalms, when you read these out loud each day, expect that the God is wants to stir your heart. Each individual poem actually will find out, it's kind of like a microcosm of the whole book. So every one of these poems kind of mirrors the arc of the whole book. So if the whole book is geared towards getting you to praise the Lord, every Psalm is doing that too. No matter where it begins, and some of them begin in a pit or in the depths, right? Well, no matter where they begin, these psalms do end with praising God in some way. They might not come right out and say, praise the Lord, but you'll, you'll see a change in their thinking. Maybe there will be some sort of um, expression of affection for God or hope in God. It could end with an appeal to one of God's promises or even just an expression of submission and obedience. And the way these songs end... Um, in comparison to where they begin. That signals to us that the psalmist has found the blessing promised in this book. His soul has learned to hope and delight in God, even in some extreme circumstances. Okay, fifth, read this book to be happy. I don't want you to think of this book as simply training ourselves to praise the Lord in every situation, though it is gonna do that. But think of this book as a, well, let me rephrase that. God doesn't simply ask you to praise him because he deserves it. He absolutely deserves it. But he asks you to praise him because he knows it will make you happy. God made you to glorify him. That is why you are here. And when you do what you were created to do, you will be happy. So expect to be happy as you read this book and as you open your mouth and give praise to God. Now last fall in 2019, I taught through some of these Psalms for the women at my church in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Well, for the last week of class, I had the women read out loud every day Psalm 111, and that's an acrostic Psalm of praise. Well, on the last day of class, a 65 year old woman named Sue stood up to share a testimony. And she started by saying, when she got up to read the Psalm that week, she saw what it was and she thought, I don't want to read that. She was in a kind of a bad place. She had been having some health problems and some struggles with her adult children. And she thought, maybe a Psalm of Lament is really what I need today. But it was the assigned homework, so she did it. She began to read Psalm 111 out loud. And something happened in her spirit when she began. She opened her mouth and began to speak God's praise. She started meditating on the truths of the song and the spirit began to remind her how true all these things are and how great God is, what wonderful things he has done. And her heart began to warm to God. And that loosened her tongue. So she was able to speak aloud God's praises. And that's exactly what God wants to do in all of us as we study this book. He wants to draw out your heart to praise him, and he's, it's going to give you great joy to do so. He wants to draw out our hearts to him so that we can praise him in every season, and we can enjoy the blessed life now. Thank you.